Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. Now your hosts. Hello and welcome to the Hyperion Hub, your meeting place for all things Disney. I'm John Alois, joined by Sean Dagenhart. My meeting place for all things Disney. And John Redling Schaefer. I must be lost. <laughs> wherever you're... <laughs> See, I can never follow. Wherever... <laughs> no <laughs> one can follow me, John. <laughs> we hope you're not lost because you found us. And if you'd like to find us in more places, you can follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. You can email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Wherever you're listening to us, please rate and review. It actually helps more people find the show. Even bad reviews? Yeah, even bad reviews actually mm, helps. no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah, there you go. We like to start things off with our Disney views, and this week we are talking about the return of the Disney Dining Plan. It's coming back in 2024, and the booking window is already open. I'm going to be reading from Dreams Unlimited Travel's website here. Shout out to Pete. Yeah. Fantastic Great guest. episode. Yeah, that was, I hated missing it. Yeah, he was uh, as authentic as we thought he would be. He yep. was wonderful. First off, there are two dining plans available. The Disney Quick Service Dining Plan. Uh, it is right now 5701 per adult. I like the 01. <laughs> and 2383 per child and a child in Disney eyes. Three right. to nine. You're right. Who does these calculations? You know you know what? What? <laughs> are you thinking 22, Jim? Nah, 2383. I like it. You know there are people sitting in a room figuring this out. There's some significance that we'll never appreciate. Right. It's there's somebody's birthday. Yeah. Everyone in the uh, party ages three and over receives the following during their package stay. Two quick service meals per day. Um, or I'm sorry, per night of stay. Two quick service meals per night of stay, one snack or non-alcoholic beverage per night of stay, one resort refillable mug. Then the other option is the Disney dining plan, and this is the classic dining options at both quick service and table service restaurants. Pricing per day, $94.28 per adult um, and $29.69 per child. Everyone in the party, ages three and over, uh, receives the following during their package stay. One quick service meal per night of stay, one table service meal per night of stay, one snack or non-alcoholic beverage per night of stay, one resort refillable mug. So are we happy that the dining plan is returning? My initial reaction is that's what I was accustomed to for so many years, so the comfort level's there, but I also recall on the last day buying 47 Rice Krispie treats too. <laughs> so we, we survived without it. If we, you know, I, I think you're still spending a decent amount of money. And we also um, order groceries on property when we mm. stay. So at least one, if not two of our meals a day are, are not meal plan related anymore. So we've kind of weaned off of the dependency. So I'm, I'm not sure we'll do it again. But you understood the benefit of it, right? I mean, yeah. I did. Um, you don't have to think about it. You of course, to... of course. But at the same time, when the mood hits you and you want a turkey leg or you know a, a waffle, you can do it. And you, it's either buy it now or as part of the plan, you always felt inclined to just 
load up yeah. for, for just because. And, mm-hmm. and I don't yeah, need to do that, right. according to my doctors. So Well, we're like you in the fact that we get groceries as well. Usually, we're not eating breakfast. Um, we're not paying for breakfast outside of what we've already ordered via groceries. Unless it's a special character meal. That's yeah. usually the only time we're going to do a special breakfast right. on property. Or, you know, once a trip, we like to get Mickey waffles or something like that. I did um, hear on another podcast, I think it was, that not all restaurants are accepting the Correct. Disney dining plan. I, was that different from before? I don't ever recall having that as a limitation. I didn't either, but I wasn't sure. Because I mean, there were some of the, the high-end, you know, Victoria sure, and Albert. Sure. And, but, but it was quite a decent-sized yeah, list yeah. that surprised me, yeah. Yeah, usually uh, was Disney Springs. There were a lot of restaurants right. there, but you're right. That was a there was quite a few restaurants. And I just liked not having to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because when you're there paying, Fair. you're feeling that pinch a whole lot more than you are six months prior when Fair. you're looking forward to it. And no, that's a fair assessment. And you know, you're you're right. You sit down and you look at the mobile order, especially if you're doing the pickup at a quick service. You go twelve twenty five. 300, 4,000, you know, okay. and after a while, whoo, that's some real money now. Uh, some people will definitely take advantage of this. Um, I'm happy it's back. I'm happy it's a it's an option at Disney. Sure. Now it's time for the second half of our conversation with James Bone, the author of the book, Music in Disney's Animated Features, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs to the Jungle Book. You can find it on Amazon or wherever you shop for books. Now, the second half. Correct me if I'm wrong, please, but Snow White, I believe, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, is the first commercially sold album for a film score, correct? I, I'll look it up. I, I'm going <laughs> to say yes. It definitely is the first f- formal film soundtrack. What I mean by that is that traditionally in Hollywood, up through the 50s and 60s, there are there's what's called the original cast album and then there's called the second cast album that typically they would re-record for musical films they would re-record the score with a second cast because that way you the dialogue and the sound effects from the movies aren't in that recording and that way you get a nice pristine recording of only the music but you don't have to hire the expensive stars to do that. Uh, so that was typical in Hollywood. Um, it just didn't make sense to do that with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs because the, there's there's very little spoken dialogue. And there's really not... The sound effects are kind of worked into the music already. So just release the, the exact recordings that appear in the film. And that's the distinction. I know that that's true. You know, you have to remember that 27, 28 was the first sound motion picture. The first sound motion picture that had like a wall-to-wall score was 1933, King Kong. And then four years later, it's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So it's not like there was a ton of soundtrack albums being sold in that decade anyway. Yeah, Walt knew what he was doing. According to uh, D23, the first album to be released was Walt Disney Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the soundtrack to the film of the same name in 1938. So, yeah, a genius. <laughs> and what a lot of people don't realize is that there was no Walt Disney Music Company at that time. 
Um, it was, I think, up through, you know, the Silly Symphonies and then the Mickey Shorts and then Snow White, Pinocchio, and I believe Dumbo was the final film, maybe, that the rights were controlled by the Irving Berlin company, the Bourne Music Company. So Walt Disney does not own When You Wish Upon a Star or Someday My Prince Will Come. Those are still owned by the Irving Berlin estate. And it wasn't until, wasn't it late 40s, getting ready for Cinderella when the Walt Disney Music Company was actually incorporated and they started, you know, maintaining ownership of all of those songs and scores. Yeah, and like there were some other films where the music was released by Southern Music, like uh, Song of the South and um, the some of the package films like Saludos Amigos. The music was published by Southern Music and Disney has managed to get that stuff back. Um, you know, because Southern music went out of business and all this stuff, but Bourne just will not they won't let, let, let go of that. that. Yeah. They, they're, they just have a death grip on that stuff, which understandably so. Did you have any issues in your book with getting the appropriate permissions from Bourne? Well, I mean, what do you call problems? I mean, um, things cost money. Number one, I don't, I didn't find them exorbitant. The thing that's tricky is lyrics. Like they want you to pay to put lyrics in a book. And um, I think with Born, I kind of respected that. And I kind of like, I think for what I paid for each song, I was allowed three references to it. And so I kind of actually counted like, here's, I have a musical example of this song. And then I mentioned the lyrics here and I mentioned the lyrics here. For the rest of the book, what I did with my publisher is we kind of took the stance of um, that if the lyrics, if I was quoting a small amount of lyrics and that the what I was quoting, I was making a direct and salient point, then that comes under fair use. And that really, they're probably not going to come. You know, the people like there's a type of person who thinks of Disney as a litigious company and they really aren't, Um, you know, and a lot of film studios kind of aren't as litigious as they're made out to be because they don't want to lose a court case. They only really do the court cases where they know they're going to win because the last thing they want to do is set precedent by losing a court case. So, you know, when you do something that's kind of in that gray area where you, you know, you've got like, I'm making a salient feature that's important to what the book is about and what it means and it's educational, then, you know, they're not going to give you a hard time over that, you know, as long as it's short. Jim, by trade, I practice law. And to hear you say, that whether it be Disney or some other art related company, the fact that they're zealously representing their client is good to hear that they are protecting the brand, that they are protecting their client. And and I admire the steps and your patience as you went through a process that yes, is it thorough? Are some of the questions or some of the steps to someone who maybe is outside of the practice would go, what in the world are we doing? You, you know, the fact that you can appreciate and, and tell us that it's part of the process, they're doing their job, and you respect it means a lot to me. And I thank you for saying that. 
Um, I guess this is my chance to ask a follow-up. Um, in, in terms of, you know, boy, you know, I, I just, I have to ask at, at a minimum, you know, in terms of being professional musicians, and, and maybe this is a question for Sean too, you know, switching, and it is because you both are, are working on very cool projects or have worked on very cool projects, putting what traditionally you convey through words and music and then just switching to the words when you write a book. That's what I wanted to ask both of you, I guess. When, when you're writing a book and not singing or uh, adding music to it, um, is it difficult? It, and, and maybe I'm not asking it properly, but are you just going, okay, this is my chance to tell a story without music underneath it. Is that harder for you to do without that music? My day job is teaching music. So, you know, it's kind of in what I do. The, the thing that's difficult for me, and every now and then I, someone takes me to task with this book, is that I think I have a sentence or paragraph in the introduction that says like, oh, you know, some of this stuff is music theory intensive, but that's only part of the book. And, you know, you can kind of get what's going on. But, you know, like, I don't remember a time in, time in my life when I didn't know uh, every key signature, you know, like, so it's difficult for me to put myself in the position of someone who doesn't understand like what a key signature and what a scale is. And so, you know, I do kind of get into these heavy paragraphs that go into a lot of musical jargon. And of course I look at, it, I'm like, well, that makes complete sense. And, you know, I, you know, Ultimately, I have to make a decision of, is there a way to say this in a more easy fashion? But a lot of times I just say, you know what, people like Sean need a book too. You know, like, and that if that paragraph isn't as accessible to everybody else, Sean gets something that speaks to him in a language he understands and is detailed and so forth. You know, this is, to a certain degree, this is, the book I wanted to exist when I was 19, 20 years old. Um, you know, and that's kind of one of the things I thought of when I was writing it. It's like, what would I have wanted to know as a 19 or 20 year old music major? Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the pr approach I'm taking, but um, I don't find it hard to talk about music because I do it all the time. So, yeah, my wife is an elementary school music teacher. And frequently when we're working with our girls on things, you know, like at the piano or, you know, well, Clara, this makes perfect sense to me. And Anne's like, hey, <laughs> you need to remember your audience and, you know, not be talking way over their heads. So that's a struggle for me, especially when I'm teaching, you know, four part chorale analysis and those kind of things like okay we need to step it back so yeah i totally understand what you're talking about needing to read the audience yeah well and, and that can and that translates over and, and i'm sure some of the correspondence you have had with lawyers or the archives you know you're getting correspondence from that world in their lingo right and i as a young associate was told eh, it's kind of funny to talk through this now you don't need to write a whole symphony when a simple song will do. And I was told that in, in practicing law. And, and it has come true that I have found, um, and, and I respect your point, Jim, that yes, um, the musicians of the world deserve their literature as well. But I have found that over my, almost 20 years of practice now, 
that sometimes it's okay to simplify and explain to your audience. And it's going to go over a lot better than they're saying, well, who's this know-it-all who can't explain anything and uses way too many Latin and italic phrases in, in, in his letters. Yeah. I still feel like the history part of the book is very accessible. Once it, when it gets into music theory land, then that's another question. That's when I started salivating. Like, oh, this is the good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so, Jim, is there going to be a follow-up book covering, like, say, oh, Mary Poppins through present day? Um, who knows? Uh, in all honesty, uh, there's there's a draft of something, but the pandemic really slowed down the process in a major way, um, such that... Um, the uh, persistence on my behalf has not been paying off as much as it did with the previous book. And, um, you know, I'm not at the point of giving up the ship yet, but there is this sort of, uh, you know, sunk cost sort of calculation going on in my head. Um, you know, I'll answer the second part when you said up to today. Um, I, I don't, like writing about more current stuff mm. because um, living people can disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, like to, um, I like to, the distance of history um, gives me more of a perspective. And I'm from a certain age that, you know, the, the older films um, speak to my youth challenged, uh, you know, position in life. Are you still teaching Disney music at the college? Yeah, it's it's changed. When I first designed the course, I covered Disney music where um, the, f the first unit was about music in the animated films. The second unit, unit was music in the live action films. And the final unit was music in the parks. I'm now teaching essentially the same course at a different college, but we've reduced it to just being about the animated films. And uh, I'm actually doing that as a summer course this summer. So can we audit those courses? <laughs> what, whatever the school says is fine with me. I, I certainly don't have a problem with it. Uh, Jim, we want to thank you uh, for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Can you let folks know where they can find you and find your book? Uh, on Facebook, there's um, is Music and Disney's Animated Features Facebook page. Um, the easy way to find the book is just Amazon or any of your finer uh, retailers, uh, online retailers, I should mention. You can also check out the publisher at Univers University Press of Mississippi. I, I know that you've had Greg Airbar on in the past. He's published by them. You've had Didier Gez on. Some of his books are published by U Press of Mississippi. So uh, they're, they've been really good about publishing um, scholarly works on related to Disney. So they've got lots of good stuff out there in addition to my book. Great. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. And when you get that second volume done, we will be sure to have you back. Well, I'll be glad to come back. Okay, thanks a lot. We're glad you could join us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub. Thank you.